they were trying to trap Jesus and Jesus knew it trying to catch him in his words trying to cause him God to pick sides and he wouldn't have it here's what they said in Mark 12 teacher we know that you're a man of integrity you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth and here's the question is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not should we pay or shouldn't we Jesus here was being tested for all the wrong motivations. Here he was presented with a false dichotomy, being trapped into two choices, either choosing allegiance with the government, with Rome, who were the Jews' oppressors at the time, or choosing allegiance with God, with his chosen people, with the Israelites. Would Jesus choose political sides, they wondered? Would he pick? But Jesus knew better than to fall into the trap. Jesus knew that to give in to one was to make an enemy immediately out of the other. And to gain what? A little bit of power? The promise of prestige? Immediate followers who agreed with his new claimed platform? 15 says, but Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Jesus wasn't about to give in and play their games. He knew that the Pharisees, in their disdain for the Roman government, didn't actually have the values of the kingdom of God on their hearts and in their intentions. They just wanted to get rid of this new rabbi on the scene. And the Herodians, those loyal to Rome and Herod, certainly didn't have the kingdom of God in mind either. They only claimed allegiance to push their agendas through with expediency and ease. I wonder what the expression was on Jesus' face. I just like to imagine it was as he was thinking here in this moment of what he would say to this question. I like to imagine that maybe perhaps Jesus, you know, glanced back at his disciples, glanced back at Matthew, the tax collector, and on the other side, Simon, the zealot, standing side by side, two men with radically opposing political ideologies, but coming together under the banner and discipleship of Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus replies, Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. 
Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. And just like that, Jesus once again subverts all expectations and gives us wisdom to chew on for ages and ages to come. Jesus wasn't there to pick their claim or their man-made political agendas, certainly not in first century Jerusalem. Can you imagine trying to squeeze the alpha and the omega into a party created by the minds of men? Can you imagine in his sovereignty and omniscience the number of kingdoms he had and will have seen rise and fall on this earth? Countless. Will he side with the Herodians? Or with the Pharisees, get real. Jesus sided with the Father and with the Spirit for the kingdom. That's it. The Son of Man didn't come to be partisan. He came to seek and save the lost. Jesus said in Luke 4:43, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. For the kingdom of God, and absolutely nothing less would do. But it begs a question for us here today. Are we like the Herodians? Are we like the Pharisees? Are we, without even realizing it, trying to get Jesus to claim our side, our beliefs, our doctrines, our politics? Why is it that 21st century Christians in America are more comfortable debating policies and pundits online than ask their neighbor about their relationship with God? or ask how they can pray for them? Why are so many Christians quick to leave their existing church communities to search out other churches that align with their political beliefs? Beliefs beliefs on public schools or gender policies or the unborn or racial equality, all of which are important, but willing to just go and find a group that better aligns and leave the people they've bonded with. Why is it that outsiders of the church see our politics before they see the power of the Spirit within us? Why is it that if pastors take the short 30 minutes a week that they have to preach from the Bible on kingdom values rather than going on diatribes about their personal politics, they get labeled as being weak or fluffy or preaching a soft gospel? even though the phrase soft gospel is an oxymoron. Was Jesus being soft when he refused to give in to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Herodians? Or did he have a higher calling in mind? Maybe Jesus knew that to align with the Pharisees was to immediately make enemies with the Herodians. 
And to fall in line with the Herodians was to neglect the Pharisees. To fall into man-made ideologies was to neglect the God-ordained kingdom advancement that he came to see happen. The good news Jesus was bringing was hard enough for some to take, but it was for everybody. Not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Repentance to turn away. But they would need to repent, all of them. They would need to turn away from their man-made barriers to the kingdom, turn away from their misplaced idols and allegiances, turn away from their professions and even their families, turn away from absolutely anything and everything that was more important than the kingdom in their hearts and in their minds. Because none of those things were more important, none of them more righteous than God himself and the new world he was ushering into existence. None of them. May we too be amazed at Jesus' response here. And may we ponder it and think closely on it and what he was doing. So here at this time, we're going to invite you in a moment to come forward and simply grab one of these crowns here that's on the front of the stage. Everyone's invited to participate. And the crown, simply put, represents our allegiances. It represents the stewardship God has given you over your life and the causes that you give your life to. It represents the gift God's given you to advance agendas forward, the devotion you have towards various missions and purposes in this life. This crown represents your political responsibilities. This crown represents your allegiances. And so during these next uh, moments here, I encourage you to come forward and grab a crown. And you don't have to put it on your head or wear it or anything, but I encourage you to just grab it and take it back to your seat. And I want you to just hold it. And in a moment, there'll be an opportunity to respond after that. But... As you hold it there, we invite you to ponder it and consider the weight of your allegiances. And think about these words of Jesus in this moment. And in a few moments, you'll be given an opportunity to respond. And so if you would, go ahead at this time, come forward, grab a crown, hold it in your seat, and we'll continue on. With the election in a couple days, it's timely that today's topic would be on surrender. Everybody has a story that includes nations. These stories unite uh, people together under common values, common ideas. They knit them together to say, hey, I'm a part of that. I've lived that with you. Over time, though, how people see that story, how they interpret it, how they engage it can change. And there can be differing opinions on how we're to live out that story and what it means to be a part of that story over time. And it can begin to fragment, and we've seen that in America. Welcome to politics and welcome to political parties. Today I want to talk about that story a little bit. For the last 150 years, we've kind of lived in a two-party system here in America. 
We have Republicans and we have Democrats, and this largely began around the time of the Civil War over the issue of slavery. But over the years, as we entered the Industrial Revolution and America began to modernize, the, the distinction between the two parties became even greater. On the Republican side of the issue for many decades, the idea was that they're the party for success. They're the party for those who want to get, to he get ahead, who, who want to be and live the American dream. On the other side, the, the Democratic narrative for many, many years was to fight for the common person to give them a fair shake, to help them succeed in a country where they may feel the system is rigged against them sometimes. And so that was, in many ways, the distinct narrative between these two parties. But what we didn't realize is around the 1970s and the 1980s, that began to fragment even further. And we didn't really even see it. It's only it's taken us two, three, four decades beyond that to really kind of look back and sociologists begin to understand what the changes are that happened during that tumultuous time of the 60s, 70s, going in to the 80s. And, and one of the main things they notice is where maybe there were two common narratives at one time, for certain that has at least fallen to four at the moment, that we are even more fragmented now than we ever have been before. And today, I want to take a look at those four different narratives for a couple different reasons. Number one, I, I want to look at it, and maybe you read through these, and you go, you know what, I kind of identify with one of these, and I hope maybe you do. You know, I identify with this one, and we're going to look at strengths, and we're going to look at weaknesses of each one of these conversations, so maybe you can better understand yourself and why you relate to this. The other reason we're going to look at them is so that you can understand that there are other people like you out there who don't think the way you do who don't necessarily see the story the way you store it or engage that story the way you engage it. And one of the things I hope we do is we move away from this polarization we often have in our culture that says, listen, if you don't believe what I believe and think the way I think, you're not just wrong, you're evil. And that's what's happened in our culture. We've moved away from being able to have healthy civil dialogue about our differences to I'm right, you're wrong, nah, nah, nah. You know what I mean? And so I'm hoping today, let's look at these four narratives and ask yourself, which one do I fall in? And then ask yourself, maybe I know some people in my life that don't completely align with me, but maybe I'll better understand them today as we go through this. So let's look at the first one, if we could. The first one is what we call free America. Now, what are they free from? Well, if you know people that, that really lean this direction, they're free from government. They don't like big government. They don't like government messing in their business. They believe less is more when it comes to the government on this. Their primary focus is largely on rugged individualism. They believe strongly in personal and property rights. Freedom is at the core of their conversation. They, they, they believe freedom, only it's their definition of freedom. And freedom is all you have, so you have to fight for it. Even if it's a freedom to mess up and live like an idiot. You know what I mean? That's what it is. I, I, no matter what, I have freedom. I can smoke, I can drink, carry a gun, and worship any way I want. This is the same group that will say, don't you dare put a mask on me, and if you shoot that thing in my arm, I'm going to punch you. You know what I mean? How dare you tell me how to live is the mantra of this group. I'm guessing there's a few in the room. What do we know about this group? 
They're typically less affluent. This is very popular among white evangelicals. That's not good news. This one has made its way into the white church in America. These are the Reagan Republicans, and in many cases, the Libertarians in our culture. What's the downside on free America? Well, as we look at the downside, in pursuing and focusing on personal rights and freedom, what is best for me, give me the best shake, allow me to succeed, and fighting for those rights and freedoms, I can lose sight when focusing on me that there are others. I can lose sight on the things that benefit me may not benefit someone else. And being so focused on me, I can lose focus on others. That's the downside on this if you're not careful. And so this group needs a little bit of help just understanding there's others out there. Let's look at a second group, though, out there. We call this group Smart America. They respect intelligence, credentials, and expertise. In this group, they like to bring people forward that have little letters behind their name. Their name right, Dr. Don? On that, <laughs> things like PhD and some other little letters. They like to bring those up, and, and, and they're the ones that should be making policy because this group likes to think globally. They relish diversity, and they welcome change, which is really good. They believe government intervention, however, is necessary for equity. They don't believe that left to our own devices as human beings, that humankind will find a way to have equity for all. So they believe that we're, you have to intervene in that case. They believe that the poor need a social safety net, and so they support things like free education, free child care, government health care. They are uncomfortable with patriotism, but let me stop here. Not because they're not patriots. They're uncomfortable with patriotism because if we go back to that second line there, thinking globally, they don't see themselves simply as Americans. They see themselves as part of a larger body called the world, of which America is only one player. They have a bigger picture of the world, and so they don't just think American, and I'm an American, and so I support America. They think in terms of the global world and how to interconnect that world together for the better of humankind. What do we know about them is they often represent the top 10% of income makers in our country. It's not always true, but it's typical. They are college grads, many with advanced degrees. They live in good neighborhoods, usually within urban or large city areas. Usually the upper middle class neighborhoods might be a better way to put that. Their success is a result of the meritocracy. Now let's stop on that one. What's a meritocracy? A meritocracy is a system that allows people that maybe have more money or more influence to use that influence and that money to advance their kids in such a way that another group in the country cannot do. It gives them sometimes an unfair advantage over those who may not have the money or have the connections to make that happen. And when that happens over time, it creates what's called a meritocracy. So they live in good neighborhoods, urban areas. Their success is the result of the meritocracy. And in summary, this is what we call the wealthy elite in our country. Now, what's the downside on smart America? In their comfort and wealthy lifestyle, they can be walled off from the rest of society. They can be in a bubble. What that means is they do welcome, as we talked about, they like societal change. They want to help people. They have a heart to truly help people. But it comes with a caveat. It's unspoken, but it's there. They want to help and they want change so long as it doesn't interrupt their day-to-day -day lives and their meritocracy. 
as long as it doesn't get in the way of what's working for me, I'm totally okay with this. And I put on there a great example, if you remember not too long ago in the news, is when the illegal uh, immigrants showed up to Martha's Vineyard and they had no clue what to do with them when they got there. In fact, the one thing they did do was ship them out of their neighborhood as quickly as they could. I'm not picking on them, that's just an example. See, I support these policies, I like these things, I'm going to fight for this group of people, just don't show up in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? That's this group. And the problem with smart America is in their affluency and in their circle of influence and friends, they can create a bubble and fail to see all sides of an issue or fail to help in a way that may even cause them to interrupt their lives on that. Next group. Real America. These are the common people. I don't mean that in a bad way. This is a large chunk of America. Most of them have traditional, traditional small-town American values. Even if they live in a city, that's what's interesting. They, they may live in a large city, but they hold to these traditional small-town values that we often see. They are hardworking, patriotic, pro-American, pro-union group of people. These are the people running factories, fighting our wars, growing our food, and teaching our kids. What do we know about this group of people? They distrust and they are suspicious of educated sophisticates. Who is that? That would be the group I just told you about beforehand. Okay? They distrust, they're suspicious of them. Why? Because they believe the system is rigged against them. Remember that meritocracy we talked about? They don't have access to it. So they believe the system is rigged against them. And largely now, because of that, they believe they are the unheard working class in America. What's the downside on this group? Because of that, they can lean towards conspiracy theory mindset a little bit. Because they do not believe they are heard, and because they believe the system is rigged against them, they believe the man, you know the man, the one who's out to get you, the man is out to get them. This is the group Trump won over in 2016. This is the group that surprised a billionaire came in and won over working America. Not only working America, the reason he caught everybody off guard is he largely won over that first group I talked about as well, the rugged individualist. That's why he won the election. This is Trump's America. This is also Hillary's basket of deplorables, which wasn't the nicest thing she's ever said. Because they feel nobody is listening to them, they have an insurgency mindset, which we began to see on January 6th. What do I mean by an insurgency mindset? An insurgency mindset says, if you are not going to listen to me, and if you're going to rig the system against me, and I'm going to feel that, know it, and it's real, I have no recourse but to start fighting back. And that's where this group is at. They don't believe America's listening to them, and they feel like they're not left with too many choices at the moment but to fight back. So before we rush to judgment on them, I'm not advocating for that, but before we rush to judgment and go right, wrong on that, understand, they're a group of people who want to be heard too. Let's talk about the fourth group. We call this Just America, and I'm going to go ahead and say it. There's another name for this group, but I think it's derogatory, so I'm not going to use it, but I'll go ahead and tell you. 
woke. Woke America would be another name for this group. Their mantra at the core of who they are is justice equals power. Unfortunately, what we've seen in the last few years is that they have a spirit of attack rather than aspiration. In other words, in failing to be optimistic and say that we can make America greater, they, they typically just immediately default towards, no, we feel under attack, therefore we will attack. They believe this country is less a project to be improved, but a wrong to be battled. That all problems are associated with white America, their greed, and their cruelty. Opposing opinions to this are considered a form of violence or hate speech. Oppose them with caution. They believe the loudest voice in a controversy wins. In fact, our culture has given that a name. Say hi to Karen. Offending them can cost you your career. Welcome to cancel culture. What do we know about them? They're young highly educated, most of them, and a vast majority of them making over 100 k a year. Where'd they come from? These are the children of smart America. That's where they came from. That second group we talked about, that's where they came from. And because I like to use big words so you think I'm smart, <laughs> they repudiate meritocracy, which means they oppose it. Because down deep in their justice mind, and correctly so, and I'm not picking on this group, I love, what I love about this group is their desire to want equity, to speak out against racism, class distinctions, wealth differences, all those things. Those conversations need to happen. It's just how they happen is the bigger question. But I agree that they should. But what's interesting about them and something they share with that second group we talked about is, is they understand maybe this meritocracy, this entitlement I have, isn't something everybody else gets to enjoy. Therefore, maybe it's wrong. However, I don't think I'm ready to give up its advantages just yet. Again, they share what their parents had, which was, um, I have a heart for justice and for those in need. I'm not sure, however, I'm ready to disrupt my life to solve it. What's the downside on just America? What we're beginning to see more and more is its failure in maybe oftentimes having a good message, but however, it's unable to include people in their story. It's, they're, they're not able to tell a story we can all see ourselves in and create a path to follow. In other words, we, we see the anger, we see the riots, we see the things, and, 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 and we go, I'm not sure what my part in this story is. I'm not sure how I can help in this. And so in the deconstruction, and deconstruction can be good, you just got to reconstruct something back. But, but in, in, in that there's a large chunk of America going, I'm not sure where I fit into this conversation. Again, they're good at deconstruction, but not necessarily reconstruction. The bigger problem, and we're watching this happen now around us, it'll be interesting to watch this one the next two to three years, the economy is beginning to turn on them as the jobs their parents enjoyed are becoming less common. They call this, sociologists call this elite overproduction. Not only are some of these high-tech jobs that are out there, you know, the Wall Street Journal two weeks ago, they had an article, and in that article, you know, it says, said, the end of the tech boom. 
is what they're noticing. And if you watch some of those companies, Twitter just released 3,000 employees in the last week. Not only are there not more tech jobs at the moment growing, but these parents went out and had kids, two or three of them at a time, and so now we're flooding the market with the elites, and there may not be the jobs for them. It'll be interesting to watch that play out in the coming years. So these are the four distinctions we're seeing across America. Maybe as you think through one, you say, you know what, I, I kind of fit in that one. If you're like me, you, I, I look at a couple of them and go, I've got a good chunk of that, and I might have a good chunk of that one as well. Maybe you fall in between a couple of them. But these are four of the large distinctions that we're seeing today. What once used to be two parties really almost has become four parties. And, and, and we can even see it. When you talk parties, you talk Republican or Democrat, immediately they're fragmented too because you've got liberals and you've got conservatives, don't you, even within those parties. So we find ourselves more fragmented today than ever. But I want to present you, if I could today, with a fifth alternative. The sociologists don't have this one. This one comes from the Bible. But I want to present you with a fifth alternative today and maybe spark your interest to join Jesus' kingdom movement. And for that reason, I call this one Kingdom-Minded America. In this one, it's a group of people who are not defined by a political party. And that those who disagree are not the enemy. They don't rely on themselves or human knowledge. Because the Bible tells us time and time again that the wisdom of man is folly compared to the wisdom of God. We serve our king and we strive to live like him in everything we do. We stand up for others and put their needs above our own. We don't believe in tearing people down. We build them up. And we understand that righteousness and justice belong to the Lord and to the Lord only. They are humble people from many walks of life. They are not defined by their skin color, education, or finances. And their desire is to live holy lives and service to their king. What I would remind us of is for those out there who say, I'm saved. I've made a decision for Christ. Christ. I've received Christ. When you did that, you are no longer part of this world. Your citizenship has been transferred. No longer primarily a citizen of America, you are now a citizen the Bible says, of heaven. That is your primary identity. That is where we get our sense of purpose, meaning. We have been called out of this world, and so we shouldn't be surprised, because Jesus told us that very thing. What did he tell us in, in John chapter 15? He says, if you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, would you please say this with me, the green words, right now, here we go. You do not belong to the world. Say it with me one more time. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so this week, there's three questions I want to give you to wrestle with, and I'm not going to give you the answers to them. I want you to wrestle with them if you could. First one is this. Which one has priority in your life, your American citizenship or your heavenly citizenship? 
when you really think about it, when you really wrestle with it, which one has priority in your life? Now let me ask a second question that's even more difficult. Is it possible that your political beliefs are getting in the way of your witness of Christ? Have you ever thought about that? When you speak to others about politics and when they see how you live, is it one that builds a bridge towards Jesus or is it a barrier? We all have a right to our beliefs. And I want to champion it. And I'm not here to tell you what to believe. Only to provide you with an alternative today. But your beliefs, are they a bridge to Jesus with others? Or do they create a barrier where people are repulsed by what you think and how you say it? Third question, tough one as well. Does it sometimes look that you care more for earthly politics than heavenly obedience? Do you get more excited about politics and politicians or Jesus? What do people see? In this world, we're called out. That includes our politics. We're to be kingdom-minded. And we're not We're not defined as Christians by a political party. You're defined by Christ. And please let me reiterate this. Wherever you lean, your party does not have a monopoly on Jesus Christ, okay? We're called to live like Christ. And so let me ask one last tough question. When you step in the booth on Tuesday to vote, have you done any homework before you went in there? When's the last time you actually looked up each candidate and what they believed and why they believed it? Or do you just go in, find your party, and mark off every box? It's the way I've always voted. It's the way my parents voted. When's the last time you actually did your homework ahead of time and walked in ready to vote like a kingdom person with the values of Christ at the center of your life? I love this verse in Colossians 3.23 and I end with it. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. And, And you know what? I don't think there's any problem whatsoever for me replacing the word work with the word vote. Because if you do your homework and you do your research, it's work. And so I wonder if we can't read this verse with a different set of eyes now. A set of eyes that says this. Whatever you do, vote with all your heart as if voting for the Lord not political parties. All I'm asking from you is this. Be good stewards with your vote. Vote as a kingdom person. Represent your King Jesus Christ in that voting booth. Let's pray. 
Dear Lord, as we go out this week to vote, may we do so as heavenly-minded people, not earthly-minded people. We've been called out of this world. Beyond parties, nothing wrong with them, Lord, but we have been called out to be kingdom-minded people, to vote as if Jesus was in that booth voting as well. And so, Lord, I challenge this church, do our homework, do our research, learn more, and vote with integrity as free people that represent their King Jesus in everything they do. In your holy and precious name, amen. As we finish the service today with a song, now comes the time for you to have an opportunity to respond with those crowns that you've had. To respond with your allegiances to respond in good stewardship with the efforts and the causes you support and even your political vote and all the above. And so as we sing this last song, whenever you're ready, there's no rush whatsoever, but we invite you to stand out of your seat, to bring your crown forward and to lay it down right here at the altar, if you will, right here in the center, just pile them up in a stack as a way to symbolize and to declare, Lord Jesus, you and you alone have my full allegiance. Your kingdom above all else. It's a way to pledge your allegiance to him and him alone. It's your way to say, Lord, I will steward this responsibility well with my vote, with my time, with my words, with my witness to others. I will steward it well. I don't take it lightly, Lord. This is not a game. This is not something that is just for 2022 in America. This goes beyond that. There are higher ramifications. I lay my crown down. I surrender it all down at your feet, Lord Jesus. I place it down. Anything I put on top of your kingdom or blocks or barriers I put in front of it, I lay it all down right here. It's a declaration. And some of you may not be ready to do that today, and that's okay. We encourage you to take your crown home. And just ponder that as a reminder. That's all right. But don't come forward until in your heart of hearts you're ready to say, Lord Jesus, your kingdom above all else.